A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Mark McKinney. Uh, Mark McKinney is on the show today, guys. Um, Mark McKinney, uh, most recently the uh, showrunner and executive producer of Less Than Kind and the executive producer of Picnic Face. It's Mark McKinney. Mark McKinney co-created, wrote, and starred in the acclaimed miniseries Slings and Arrows and has appeared in such movies as The Saddest Music in the World and Spice World. Mark McKinney is also a former cast member of Saturday Night Live. It's Mark McKinney. No, guys, it's Darrell. It's Brett Sudelman, Sharice, uh, the bigot cabbie, cop number two, Herman Menderchuk of Rod Torfelson's Armada featuring Herman Menderchuk. Come on, Mississippi Gary, Satan. Okay, fine. It's the chicken lady. It's the I'm crushing your head guy. It's Mark McKinney here in my studio. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by David Enyart, Carl Goenlock, Hugh Stimson, James Huff, Stefan Derosser, Robert Finley, Stephen Ryan, Paul Matthews, Robert Morier, Lynn Cody, and Ken Stevens. Ken, why did you decide to be awesome? Because I believe you're the future of Canadian journalism. I see with the collapse of the big traditional news outlets, we need something in its place. And I don't want that to be the, the drudgery for us. I want it to be an organization with journalistic integrity. And I see you bringing that. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, 
half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. I was reading your Twitter stream, and you're, you're, you seem to be fairly a fairly engaged citizen in the process. Uh, engaged. Yes, okay, fine, sure. Soknaki <laughs> strikes me as like a Kids in the Hall character. Totally. Isn't he? Yeah. yeah. He's, he's like the reasonable man while there's just absurdity. Just going on. Who just kind of go, well, guess I should get out of it. And then, you know, the entire race changes. Yeah. You know, and then John Tory starts saying, I'm not going to meet with this reporter. And then it's just like, what? Enough. Enough. We've had enough. I know, but <laughs> this is the weird part to me. I mean, politicians, you know, not wanting to speak to the press is becoming unfortunately very common. You know, it used to be they hated reporters, but what are you going to do? You got to get your message out. Well, it used to be, wasn't, didn't they used to go out and there was a fraternal brotherhood of people that they sat down, sort of like from the Mike Duffy era, you know, of like, well, I didn't like your question, but let's go get a steak and a bottle of red wine and a couple of hookers. And, you know, well, I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. No, you hear stories like that. I mean, it, it's, it sounds, it's fodder, but it's true. Um, yeah. But that was like, there was, I think, an Ottawa fraternity like that. And there were clubs like that. And there was, you know, when, when the reporters are jockeying to become senators, that kind of stuff happened. But rank and file, like scrum reporters, are supposed to be irritating and ask irritating questions. Well, they are. And they're, they're supposed to get it, even if they are Ezra Levant. Though, I mean, that's the only person I could see. Then again, maybe that's my liberal bias. I'm not, not that I'm liberal, but, uh, um, you know, that that calling somebody's mother a prostitute is like, is, is like cause for not getting another interview. I don't know. Were they unhappy? That they got all this press about Trudeau. I mean, it's like it's you know it's that sleazy thing of like anything. Just get my name right, baby. Somebody tweeted, yeah. "This is the best day in Ezra's yeah, life." That's you spell that ass face. A S S F A S E. It's interesting to see that you're you're such a, a Canadian citizen who's engaging in this stuff. And I think back on like Kids in the Hall was a Canadian show. Like it really felt rooted in. I mean, Toronto specifically, but not totally. 
I knew those people. Canadian like, suburbs and a certain generation. And yeah. we were Canadian by accident. But I, that's one thing I love about the, the show is that people said, made me proud to be Canadian. You know, like, how? <laughs> Darrell is a guy I know. And, you know, the uh, Bobby's dad right. with, the, with the, the vest who runs the trucking company. Like, that's yeah. a guy who I've met in Alberta. He's from Alberta. He's from Alberta, the yeah. guy that yeah. – these, these, I mean, even like the white Rasta guy uh, who directed Sex Goal Patrol right. is, I know, I met that guy in Kensington Market. I'm sure of it. Yes. For a show that was so absurd, it was rooted in something like very observational about Toronto, specifically maybe the suburbs of Canada. Maybe Toronto is like a good place to do it, but it was accidental. All my voices and stuff, my parents were diplomats, so I grew up all over the place. So the, the Rasta accent was was the three years I lived in Trinidad, you know? It right, right. Sort of coming to life. And that was kind of an add-on. Sex Girl Patrol actually <laughs> was my bullshit piece when uh, – because uh, – uh, uh, our, you know, the first job that any of us got, well, it was Bruce and I, we, we went to go uh, and be apprentice writers on Saturday Night Live before Kids in the Hall when Lauren had already discovered the troupe but hired a couple of us away for a year. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's this tradition where on Monday the host comes in and they're always sort of nervous about, you know, oh, is anyone going to have anything for me? So you try and come up with the pithiest title that'll get them excited. And I, you know, for 20 weeks I pitched, I got the, working on this idea called Sex Girl Patrol. Oh, that sounds good. Well, hell, we got, you know, and then you never write it up. And then on Kids in the Hall I just I wrote it up one day. That was all. It's a classic. Yeah. The caveman is the one thing I fought for is uh, should be, you know, a catchphrase if it isn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The deus ex ending. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I know it's that you've done tons of stuff since and I hate to dwell on it. We'll talk about other stuff. I just uh, – there's something – besides just the fact that I'm a huge fan of the show, it still is remembered as this kind of like special unicorn anomaly. It's it's actually a problem, you know. Like, I, I speak with a lot of people about – Canadian television on this show, and I, I speak mm. a lot of people about uh, Canadian comedy and what they could be and what they should be and why stuff doesn't come out the way people want it to. And, and you know, when we're kind of describing almost like built-in problems with the system, it's like, yeah, but what about Kids in the Hall? Because that got made, and it was so awesome. And, you know, yeah. wh why hasn't that happened since? I mean, you could go and find other – awesome sketch troops. There's tons of them in Canada. Yeah, there are. Why can't that happen again? Why hasn't it? Huh. That's a really good question. Um, I think, well, for one thing, the Kids in the Hall, we had, we had great luck in terms of our timing. We were one of HBO's first comedy offerings when the dial that you, was available to you to watch went from 10 channels to 100 channels. And there was a time there, about a decade, decade and a half, where that was the offering. So there was this a big enough audience that between CBC in Canada and HBO in the States, we could do a show where we got to do film pieces and live studio with four cameras rolling and stuff like that. I mean, that's a big scale show. That's, I don't know what it would cost today, but it's not cheap. Um, and, and, and also we had the fabulous triumvirate of, uh, of oversight. We had no sort of effective oversight, I want to say. Yvonne Fitzon was head of the CBC. He liked Lorne Michaels. Lorne Michaels liked us. So they made a deal. So that meant that the CBC didn't really want to interfere with that Lorne Michaels show. People from HBO didn't want to fly from Los Angeles to go into tapings every Friday night. They had families. <laughs> so we were kind of left on our own, you know, to, to sort of do it. So between that and the fact that we were sort of part of the first cable wave, because now there's a thousand channels. That's yeah. part of the problem. I think, you know, that's what I think happened to, with, with Picnic Face, which is a show I enthusiastically threw my uh, hat in with. And, uh, and I thought they did a brilliant job. I thought, if anything, they were better in their first season than we were because they were instantly hip to the medium in a way that took us a full year. And, uh, and, that, and that year, and I know from, you've talked about Watts, that year that was 2008, 2009, 
Picnic Face and uh, Michael Tuesdays and Thursdays, both shows that should have got a second season on merit, uh, were canceled. And I think it's because people at the, you know at the networks like the, if you remember, like no one knew where the business was going. Yeah, no one knew where the business was going. You look at something like Picnic Face, where they have this built-in audience. Yeah, you know, I mean, they've got web videos that have twenty-five million views. Yeah. They have people who will go to any live show who will like, you know, they'll watch them. Uh, and you look at the ratings and they were getting like, you know, 100,000 people sometimes. And I think a bit more, actually. That's yeah. that's for a Canadian cable show. Like that, there are shows that are in their fourth and fifth season that don't do half that. Mm-hmm. So like how, I just I can't understand the industry. I don't understand how decisions are made. That was that was really too bad because I think it, had Picnic Face gone to a second year, I think it would have been. Another great troupe has just come from Canada, at least as big as, you know, Whitest Guys We Know or, or your Human Giant or any of these other ones that are sort of, you know, caught on in the interim. You know, Key and Peel, you know, that kind of thing. Do you have any insight into why that decision? I mean, besides this just sort of like confusion as to where the industry was well, going. Well, somewhere some, someone just thought, ah, you know, I, I, I don't want to gamble on a second year. And, and I mean – the history of comedy is littered with shows that were on the bubble or canceled at the end of the first year, including Kids in the Hall. We were canceled at the end of our first year. And it's oh, only, that's right. Yeah, and it's only because we then won a raft of awards at what were then called the Cable Ace Awards that suddenly we were back on. Uh-huh. You know, uh, but we got through by the skin of our teeth. I mean, do ratings matter? Isn't it like, like I mean, maybe it's not an artistic well, of decision. Course they matter. It's a business, you know. <laughs> but is that what, I mean, one thing that I've been looking at is how much you know, it's just about kind of a broadcaster that makes all of its revenues off of replaying American shows. Mm-hmm. And that's only in their TV concerns. They're making way more money off of their cell phone contract right, and right. stuff like that. And then they got to make a bunch of Canadian shows. And it seems like sometimes they're making decisions that are just like, let's just keep that one on the air because it's, it's low headache and it's low budget. It's set up. and But also sometimes some of these MOR shows like sell well. You know what I mean? There's market. It's harder to do something that it's harder to be HBO. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It is, I think. I think you really have to do that. And I think the the, the executives that make your program, that, that gamble their careers on saying, you know what, I'm going to pass on Game of Thrones because I don't think that's going to, you know what I mean? Like that, those are high stakes decisions. And so I think there's probably a fairly sophisticated culture at the creative level uh, down there on the other side of the camera, on the other side of the business, on the business side of the business. Um that just, I don't know, maybe people get to take bigger bets or better bets or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It's not so much about having the critical darling hit as much as if you have like a police procedural that you can sell around the world, that's well, going to yeah. be. yeah. I mean, know. Flashpoints really was really good news for, for Canadian television. Yeah. It sold everywhere. It made a, a really good profit. Yvonne Fitzan, who was then head of the you know CTV, made sure that the road was paved for that thing. Uh, people got rich, which I have no problem with. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and you know, another generation of Canadian crews got trained, you know. Um, so, and, and, you know, but then it is. It's, it's, it's a cop show. It's a pretty good cop show. It's a nice-looking cop show. Um, and that's good. Maybe, the, maybe it's all ahead of us. Maybe. I hope it is. Theoretically, you know, you, you need a bigger budget. To, like, you can't do Game of Thrones in Canada. But you, no. but you could do... You know, it's just, it's just about finding the right troop and I think like grooming them properly and, and having, you know, like, like I remember hearing it once put forth at Just for Laughs. Somebody was saying, why doesn't the CBC just hire one of the kids in the hall to kind of be their comedy guru? 
and right. scout around for the best troops and like shape it and kind of just mentor them through the thing. And they should just have like, in the same way that they're always coming out with new hour long dramas, they're always coming out with new sitcoms. When's the last time they had a sketch comedy show? It's hard. That's what was really special about Picnic Face. They had all found each other. No one had asked these people to get together and be brilliant. No, there was no money in it. I saw the club they were playing. It was tiny. Mm-hmm. But they just they just had become this collective as I think organically formed comedy troops do. I mean, the comedy troops that are thrown together, you know, Uncle Slappy's Happy Time, you know, or whatever, just kind of lack the kind of perspective that you need that makes you watch you know, a certain type of comedy. It's like the monkeys versus the Beatles. Kind of, which I was just thinking about today. Though the monkeys weren't horrible. No. I mean, yeah. if you're going to kind of like, you know, Svengali something, you, you could do worse. If you're going to Svengali something, I mean, arguably we got Svengali, but it was very gentle. That was another part of our luck. We had the one producer in North America who had launched a groundbreaking sketch comedy show within living memory, you know, uh, and who had, had learned the lesson that it's half about you know, giving direction and half about staying the hell out of it, you know. Tell me this story again, because I was just listening to uh, Mike Myers on WTF saying that he was almost in the kids in the hall. Oh, yeah. No, he was um, he was around. I mean, it was the, the troop sort of was the collision of two troops. There was the the audience from Calgary, which was myself, uh, Bruce McCullough, Frank Van Keeken, Norm Hiscock and Gary Campbell. And we had done a show out there called Late Night Comedy. Um, at the Loose Moose Theater, which is where theater sports got its start. Do you know theater sports? Yeah. Yeah, competitive yeah. improvisation invented by Keith Johnstone, the guy who wrote Impro, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, they had a theater, an actual theater that they, that they owned. And so we asked if we could do a late night show. And we started writing our own strange sketches. And because it's Calgary, which is kind of like Winnipeg, which is a little bit like Halifax, you know, a town that's far away, mm-hmm. we got an audience. We got an audience, an enthusiastic audience that was into our stuff. So when we arrived in Toronto, we knew it could be done. And there were Luch uh, Kazmiri and Dave Foley and Kevin McDonald, who were – they were being the al- the alternative sort of aggressively weird sketch troupe. In sort of a culture, I think back at the time where a lot of people were just trying to get in the second city. Yeah. You know, that was kind of like the only way. And uh, and so we were kindred spirits. And so we were seven. Norm didn't come out. Uh, Gary and Frank drifted off. They got early TV writing gigs. And then it sort of became the four of us. And then Scott joined, sort of like limited on because he liked it. Wouldn't go away. He was a guest that we invited down for night like we did with Mike Myers and Sandra Shamus and, and some other people. And he just wouldn't leave. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. It's like trying to get into a company with Second City versus like starting a band. It was. You know, and I, I, I really kind of uh, got sentimental last week or the week before when I heard that they sold the Rivoli, Andre and David. Yeah, I just heard that. And had sold the Rivoli. And I was thinking, God, you know, that's extraordinary. They let us have their Monday nights for basically a solid year, year and a half playing to ruinous bar tabs, you know, like 12 people, 20 people, yeah. maybe 30 people. And then uh, the thing that made the troop is that, that like in March of whatever year it was, they doubled down and gave us a weekend where we did a best of, which suddenly was packed and suddenly set us on our way. But uh, You needed that time. We needed that time, yeah. Yeah, it's got to gestate. I mean, similarly to when you're on the air, it takes like – it takes time to build an audience while you're simultaneously figuring out what the show is. Oh, yeah. And we were very precious about on our first year of television. Like the first year Kids in the Hall, there's some good pieces, but they're – you know, the, the better stuff I think – the denser shows I will say came later because we hadn't learned how to get off a stage yet. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and uh, it took a while. Yeah. I saw a taping when I was in high school. 
Did he really? It was high energy. You guys came out. I don't know if you did this all the time. There was this kind of like, he came out in suits and danced before the show began, and the shadowy men were playing so loud. Yeah. I, I felt like I was at a, at a at a rock show. Like I felt like I was at a concert. That was that was our energy, and we broke up furniture backstage and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was incredible. Yeah. It it, uh, it was a lot of fun. But it was like this just this special moment. It's hard to think of something that's come since. And well, I think you know, I think it can come again. Certainly, Canada is stuffed with talent. We just have this horrible problem that that uh, unlike any other English-speaking country in the world, we have an incredibly culturally porous border with the United States. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if you're in New Zealand or Australia or England or Ireland or Scotland or any of the other English – is that all of them? Uh, you, I don't I think know. so. The, yeah. Uh, you know, you, if you see a cop show and it's a guy in, a, in an American accent, yeah. you experience a dislocation. Oh, you might like the show, but that's an American show. We don't have that. Yeah. Those are both our lemons and our lemonade. And I don't think that the that in a sort of strategic or even tactical way that that advantage and disadvantage has ever really been addressed. It's true. I guess I would argue that we – you know, the idea that like, well, all of our best people go to the states. Well – No, they don't. Like it's a porous border. We lose a lot of people who could be doing great stuff. But we, it's sort of like there are people who haven't gone down yet who we yeah. – you know, and then there's people who come back. And then there's people who kind of – there's a lot of people who work in, in American TV who kind of work in both. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not for lack of – No, but there is something about losing that middle. Like, you know, you get a, a, an actor or a writer or something like that who starts to, you know, um, get their chops. And then the big playground feels like down there. Mm-hmm. And then they're not here. So there's this middle chunk, you know. Because if, if you're in a good writing room, it's senior people, middle people and – and beginners, and you need that chain. Yeah, creatively, huh. you need that chain. So ours is gappy. Our directors go away. Our editors go away. Our act lead actors go away, in a way that I don't think they do in other countries. Certainly, like England, you know, floods LA with with a lot of talent, but they have this other thing going on in, in their own homes. So. And and they play to their own strengths, and and they have like they know what they do well. You mm-hmm. know, they have. Uh, I mean, they have wonderful actors, and they and they have a taste for really acerbic and dark stuff. And I, I mean, and you yeah, find, and they have their own style too. Yeah, and their own style is celebrated on a scale that that rewards them. Yeah, you know. Well, you know about this because I mean, you've you've been working as a showrunner on a seri- on a number of of comedy shows. Mm-hmm. So tell us, like, what is that job? <laughs> uh, uh, well, you're the creative boss as the showrunner, um, and and of course. You know, uh, it, that's it. I mean, you, you have to know what the show is about. That's basically it. You know what, where, where the show is, where it isn't. Because if you've got a really, uh, a really great writer's room, you're getting uh, millions of ideas, some of which fit what you're trying to do and some of which don't. So you play traffic cop a lot. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you try and learn about as many of the creative levers as possible. Like, you know, and now I'm starting to learn about budgets because you start to realize, oh, if I do that scene, then I can't do these three scenes. Uh-huh. Okay, which are actually more valuable. Is is this the person who is uh, the writer, director, creator of the show, or or is this a different? Not necessarily. Like yeah. less than time was created by Marvin Kaye and Chris Shays Green, but we worked together on it for well a long enough time before it went that I felt fully implicated creatively by the time we we started up and uh you know and I wrote scripts and I directed and and I was the the creative boss but mm-hmm. yeah 
So it's about it's about making decisions, like because you see the name of the writer on the episode, but there's a showrunner who's like, there's a room where people get together and figure out they break down the whole season. It depends. Some some writers' rooms are weird. Huh. They give you a very little info and then they send you away. This is by reputation. The way I like to do it is, I <laughs> I will throw my last dollar at another day in the story room, because as you revisit it and revisit it. You know, you come up with ideas and you refine and you say, is that really the way we want to expose that thing or is that the best joke? And then – and you cook these scripts like a beautiful stew. And uh, yeah, that, that, that's what I like about the writer's room. But yeah, but sometimes they're very more – they're much more militaristic. You like to jam. You- uh, I, like, I like to jam. I like, you know, the shortest bit is really going away and writing the script. Yeah. Most of it is figuring out the season and then the stories within and then going over them again and again and again. Because writing can be lonely, but I have this kind of idea of – Well, that's uh, why I like doing it that way. I hate writing. I hate that part of writing. But this is more – this like – I think a lot of people have this vision of of, of comedy writers is like you hang out with really funny, smart people and you tell jokes. Yeah. Yeah, basically. That's what it should be. And they don't have to be funny. I mean you can have story people and joke people and – Uh-huh. Yeah. It's frustrating, like, it's so hit and miss. It's like kind of like lightning in a bottle, like, whereas something like Saturday Night Live is an institution, mm-hmm. you know, and it sort of has this machinery for having, you know, bad years and good years, but people come through it and they, like you say, there's a like a, a career chain where, you know, people, uh, senior in the middle starting out, and it can facilitate all these careers going through it and all these, you know, like... Kids in the Hall happened and then it ended and then it, everyone was – it felt like everything has sort of left like, well, well, how do you do that again? What's what's the way? What's the – It's hard because I think the people who probably are best at spotting, you know, the neck – you know, what a really great creative idea often aren't the people who are going to be in power. Mm-hmm. And the people that you want to have controlling the money and being smart about the power don't necessarily and, – and appropriately so – don't necessarily sometimes understand how – the creative chain works. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a rare producer or, or exec or, or sometimes even director who understands, you know. You had, I mean, with Slings and Arrows and Less Than Kind, these were sort of like shows that came from a particular point of view and that still get talked about as like, yeah, that got that got closer to something. Like there, yeah. there was something like an author mentality to that and it was human and the comedy came from character and – I mean, you kind of like got a heavy degree of association with a few of the like the major touch points that people look to is like, let's build on that success. Let's right, build on right. that success. Yeah. It's in this weird place now where I don't even know that there's any broadcaster in the country that's trying to make that kind of show anymore. And there's so few half hours <laughs> made in Canada. It is. I think I think maybe maybe comedy is just harder, you know. It's uh certainly like, you know, uh, Bell and and I can't remember if Rogers is, but Bell and Rogers and Shaw are having luck with a certain type of program. Hour-long procedurals seem to be doing okay um, for them. And sometimes in some cases, like, you know, they're having really big successes. Mm-hmm. Comedy-wise, yeah, it's tricky. It's it's harder. I think it's harder. Do you see yourself as like an advocate for the forum or do you get frustrated when that gets neglected? I think there should be more. I think there's more talent here than we're seeing uh, uh, properly put up on TV. Um, I'm not exactly sure I know how to solve that equation, but yeah. that's just my sense. There's, there's, I mean, just go around Toronto. Toronto's stuffed with talent. There's so many comedy. There's so many independent comedy clubs now. You know where people are, are you know, getting to do whatever they want. Yeah, yeah. On, on Blur, there's the comedy bar and there's like the, these, the, I don't know, there are these scenes now. Yeah. It doesn't feel that dissimilar from the way the Rivoli used to be. Yeah, but the Rivoli was the only place for a yeah. decade, 
you know. What about the internet? I mean, so I think it used to be this concept of you start on the internet like Picnic Face, you build a cult audience, and then you make it on TV. Right. And it almost seems now like it's not like the money is so great. Yeah, why bother? (laughs) Yeah, and you're you're, you're reaching 25 million people on the internet and 100,000 people on TV. Yeah. The Lonely Island guys, you know, they they follow that kind of Picnic Face route, and it went very well for them. Yes. A Picnic Face like, okay, well, let's go back on the internet. Like, what's what's the mentality? Well, no, I think the experience of going through the TV show, because it was grueling, I think they did it the same year they did their feature film yeah uh so they were kind of uh, you know done yeah um i don't know like a, a picture, i guess i guess you know i guess probably if kids in the hall were coming along today we'd, we'd head straight to the internet yeah because it just feels like we we had a natural aversion to suits you know so but you bounced off it well though i mean the uh i remember screw you taxpayer Oh, that was, was really it? fun. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The only the only sketch that HBO ever objected to. <laughs> huh? It felt like that was a sketch about CBC, though. Yes, I know. That's why they objected. Our fans won't get it. Oh, I see. Yeah. I see. Yeah. Well, I guess I see the point. I mean, you have to know that it was made for the CBC, but yeah. it happens to be. Or they show. don't want to start a revolution. <laughs> what? My money? I'm doing the old guy again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or you give HBO viewers the false impression that their HBO fees were. Or, yeah, being paid to. Yeah, that was yeah. a forced tax, and yeah. you know, Americans don't. Black helicopters, <laughs> HBO tax. Yeah. What are you working on now? Uh, oh, I have a sort of eclectic bunch of things. Um, I'm working with Susan Coyne and uh, Bob Martin on a on another slings and arrows ish idea, and uh, like I got a c- couple of comedies that are burbling along and things like that. And uh, what else? Yeah, an acting work. I'm looking. I wanted. I want to leaven it with a little bit more acting work. I'm trying to figure out how to get back on stage somehow. You seem to kind of have more gracefully figured out a balanced repertoire where you're kind of like balancing earning a living with doing stuff that is creatively fulfilling. Since Kids in the Hall ended, interesting careers for each member. You know. Yeah, we got that. Was that's the ultimate dividend? Was that doing Kids in the Hall? Well, first of all, give us a certain sense of creative confidence. Like I started show running really on less than kind, and I I realized, oh my god, between SNL and Kids in the Hall, I know how to produce. Yeah, you know, at least at least most of it. And fortunately, had the wit to uh, to sort of <laughs> write down what I didn't know. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's that that really was the was the payoff. Because like, even like in a year, you know, where you're uh, sometimes because there's a lot of it's writing right now, and so you feel slaved, and you don't want to be in a room, and you don't want to be doing anything theoretical. All these scripts that may never see the light of day. Yeah. Um, so I get to go out on tour with kids in the hall for three weeks in the spring, or or do something else, or you know. Somebody who was a fan when they were a kid is now, my God, running a TV show. So they have me on for for a couple of days. It's, right, right. It's nice. It's different. I mean, like Dave Foley, it's like, wow, he's he's a lead he's in a network everywhere. sitcom. And it's like, yeah. oh, he's a host on the world poker, the celebrity poker. You know, yeah, it's sort yeah. of these ups and downs, I guess, where it just seemed like you kind of um, did a bunch of stuff that was interesting to you. Yes. I think people sort of followed their their uh, their their bliss. Bruce has a book coming out next month and a one-man show he's bringing to uh, – to the Isabel Bader in October and uh, and Scott 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 became a really good stand-up. It used to be an in-troop joke about how terrible and flop sweaty he would get during his stand-up. He's amazing now. Is that what he's doing now? Yeah. Well, that's part of it. I mean, he he also you know acts and and writes and he has a he does a graphic novel or two and things he, like that. Yeah. He is like I just having had the luck of ch- chatting with him a couple times. Like the loveliest, kindest guy. Yeah, you know? he really is. Unless you get him angry. Right. Which is, yeah, I've been on the receiving end of that. But he is a really lovely guy. Truly. I don't suppose we're going to fix Canadian television. 
during this conversation. Uh, do you want to try? Go for it. I mean, it seems like it's, it's that's all Canadian TV people talk about when I when I usually is like this is what I would do if I was running things. Right. Do you want to have a go at it? How would I fix Canadian TV? Burr, 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 burr. Well, I think actually the CBC is changing direction, and I, I'm not sure if this is the entirety of the answer, but I think that that part of the mandate that seems to be unfolding is that uh, don't compete with the major nets. They don't need to be doing procedurals or, or cop shows. There are things that are like on 35 channels already and uh, you know, find things that are uh, Canadian but accidentally Canadian in mm-hmm. kind of the best way you know, and, uh, and, and, and place your bets on the, on the, the people. Um, there's a lot of – because of the stakes involved, this is the ridiculous thing. I mean you know, when I started out – when I started out – let me say that in the old guy voice. When I started out – uh, you know, I would uh, I'd come up with a sketch idea. I'd write it with Bruce Scott, Dave, or Kevin, and we'd go and we'd do it at the Ribley, and it was done, and it was out, and it was there to be improved upon or rewritten or whatever we wanted to do. Now, in uh, you have a, a, a situation where even if you're low budget, you're asking for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, so that you can do your do your stuff. Right. And the problem is there is a lot of people get involved when those sums of money start getting bandied about. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think. That that maybe the cure for comedy is that those people that you you just got to place your bet on the people and let them go and you may get crap, you may get someone who's oh no oh no they hit the self indulgent year right when we gave them a TV show oh my god this is gonna be awful yeah you know or or whatever but I think that's the the only only way to go. Mark, this is uh, Silicon Valley uh, venture capital advice. This is like don't invest $10 million in, in one startup. Right. Invest $100,000 in 100 startups. And see what happens. And don't be afraid to fail a bunch of times. Well, you can even place bigger bets. It's just like you can – you should – yeah. I would – I think you can, you can place bets on people. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, and don't be afraid to be weird. And don't be afraid to be weird. Thank you. That's my button. <laughs> Thanks very much, Mark. Thank you. Um, it's great. Anything? God damn, is it hot? I'm sorry. I should have figured out the fan. <laughs> <laughs> I'll uh, I'll release you. Really? I apologize. No, no, it's fine. So bad. All right, that is your Canada Land show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me at jesse at jessebrown.ca. I read them all. I respond when I can. I'm on Twitter at Jesse Brown. The show's website is canadalandshow.com, and the crowdfunding site is at patreon.com/slash Canada Land. I make this show with Christopher DeMello. The next episode of Canada Land Shortcuts will be up Thursday morning. If you like this show, support it. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. 
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.